Um, some of us will know you, Roz, from your um, dulcet tones on the Church Society podcast. Others from the kind of cool T-shirts that you managed to get onto the General Synod live stream. Thanks. But for those of us who don't know you, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? What's your role and, and your work with Church Society? So I have been Associate Director of Church Society for a while. And um, what do I do? I mean, I used to say that my main job was keeping legatus under control, but we now have a team of like seven or eight of us. Mm-hmm. So we share that out. <laughs> I, uh, I organise Jake. I help with some of our other conferences. I'm involved in some of our writing and publications ministry. So the Global Anglican uh, that Lee mentioned earlier. I used to be involved in, tr- in Crossway, but I, I don't do that anymore. But I, I don't do anything anymore. Priscilla. Priscilla, thank you. I run an online training course uh, for women who are involved in um, volunteer ministries or want to be involved in volunteer ministries in the local church. Thank you. I uh, run a co-workers network, which is for complementarian women in Anglican ministry. Um, so that's sort of together with the Bishop of Ebbsfleet, uh, getting women together to encourage and support each other in ministry. I'm also on General Synod. I'm part of a standing commission um, five on the Five Guiding <laughs> Principles. Thank you. It's got a name that is impossible uh, to remember. The Five Guiding Principles, which um, are supposed to govern how complementarians and egalitarians flourish together in the church ring. Um, yeah, I do, I do a lot of bits of things. Podcast, Thank you, yes. I oversee our podcast and our website. No. Apologies if you've ever tried to use the website. We're trying. <laughs> dog, that dog. sounds like a bunch. Would you like seven people to work for you? I, what I really want is a PA, if anyone's interested, <laughs> and can work for free. I think, I think we're in the market. <laughs> what, um, and just have some advice. So what small furry animal have you left behind? Oh, no. I haven't got a picture. I should have put one. So this is not actually a picture of where I live, but it's quite similar. We don't have dairy cows anymore. Uh, we did when I was growing up there. We have, we have sheep, um, and I live in a very small house, and I, since April, have been sharing that with my dog, who is the best dog in the world, Charlie. <laughs> we also bought a dog quite recently, and we really regret it. You, you clearly don't regret it. No, although, I mean... I mean, this isn't being recorded, is it? He has got a bit bitey recently, and I'm having spent a lot of money having proper behavioural training. And, like, I think technically he could be a dangerous dog under the dangerous dog. He's not a dangerous dog. He's lovely. He just gets a bit scared sometimes. Okay, and you've got 10 seconds to answer this question. What is it that you love most about the Church of England? Do you know, I was thinking about this because I did get some warning from Robbie, who's very kind. I love that it is real. It's not like an airbrush church. It has all the faults of every church you'll find in the New Testament. Ten seconds, perfect. Very good. That's a good answer. That's Great, what... Ros, over to you. Okay, I, I will just go and get my talk. <laughs> and also, um, uh, someone needs to do my PowerPoint. Robbie does. Thank you. <clears throat> Good. I mean, we've heard all the good stuff, haven't we? It's great, isn't it? The Church of England's got just the church that she needs. Yeah. I mean, the Church of England... What is the church that England has? Well, it is in a mess, isn't it? It is in a mess. There are factions in the church, just as there were in Corinth. There are pretty deep disagreements in understanding the basic gospel message, just as there were in Galatia. 
There are false teachers, just as there were in Ephesus. There are church members and even church leaders tolerating gross sexual immorality. Corinth again. Christians threatening each other with legal action. Corinth. I mean, it was pretty rubbish in Corinth, wasn't it? Um, There are Christians who've never grown to any kind of maturity in their faith, just as there were uh, in the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. There are certainly people who love to waste their time on pointless arguments. There are people who are weak-willed. There are people who are greedy, people who are prejudiced, and people who just love the sound of their own voices. It's nothing new, but the church is certainly in a mess. There are people who have been badly taught, and there are people who have been badly hurt. There are people burying their heads in the sand, and there are people proclaiming that they know exactly what we should be doing to sort it all out. There are sinners everywhere you look. There are threats of schism, whether we want to call that separation or differentiation or some other nice word. There is a very real threat of financial collapse. There are declining numbers of people going to church, and the church has very little remaining influence on the rest of society. There is a vast theological vacuum and actual heresy. I don't think we should sugarcoat this. Our church is in a right mess. And by that I mean the church universal as it exists in this geographical location in England. Because one of the messes that we are in is that the church in England is broken. England, obviously not unique in this. I mean, you just have to look at Scotland to see how bad things can get. But it is still a deep sadness that the church here is broken up into factions. Sorry, denominations. I follow the FIEC. I follow the Baptists. Well, I follow the Archbishop of Canterbury. No, I follow the Bishop of Rome. I follow the Anglican Mission in England. No, the Anglican Convocation in Europe. Yeah. To be clear, a denomination is not a church, is it? A local church is a church. The Church Universal is the church. What's a denomination? It's kind of part parachurch organisation providing administrative support, part fellowship between local churches, part oversight of local churches. It's a weird kind of thing. The Church of England, for the first 150 years or so, was the church in England. And in an ideal world, that's still what it would be, I think. I mean, I do think it's better that we had an act of toleration rather than just go around killing people who weren't wanting to be in the Church of England. But it's not a good thing that we need to keep separating and separating and separating again. There's a a really great chapter in uh, this uh, pink book. Coral. Gospel flourishing. (laughs) Gospel flourishing in a time of confusion. Um, The chapter by Lee um, on secession. So secession, just leaving the Church of England. A history of all the groups that have left the Church of England in the last 500 years or so, and how well that went, or in fact didn't. The most successful, probably the Methodist Church, and we all know how well that's going. (laughs) The situation that we are in today, therefore, is nothing new. You are all... Maybe not Tony. You are all too young, (laughs) as am I, 
to remember the debates uh, between John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 1960s, in which Lloyd-Jones called on evangelicals to come out of the Church of England and from other denominations as well, I guess, and join together in an evangelical fellowship, something a bit like uh, the FIEC as it is today, I think. And only a few evangelical Anglican ministers did that. But even so, I think it did have a very significant impact in making evangelicals disconnect themselves from the Church of England and its structures. Preach the gospel in the parish and don't worry about the politics. 40 or 50 years of that has had an impact. So anyway, we're in a mess, and I don't think we should be surprised that we're in a mess. Thankfully, we can always, of course, keep holding on to the truth that Christ is building his church, Christ is the great shepherd of his flock, and Christ is the head of the body that is the church. So whatever mess we get ourselves into, he is still on the throne, he is still doing his work, he is still building his church. Hallelujah. So what I am going to talk about is not the church in England, but the church of England for the rest of this session, with that caveat that it's not really a church. What is it then? Well, uh, let's move on to the next one. What is the church? Well, it is a bureaucratic quasi-democracy of confused leadership. Yeah. Catchy. Yeah. I mean, Jam's nodding his head. It is. It's bureaucratic. It's kind of democratic, but not really. And it is very, very confused in its leadership. Structurally, the Church of England is in a complete mess. Each of its 42 dioceses operates independently with their own finances, their own staff, and within certain limits can do whatever they want. For example, I'm on that standing commission that I mentioned earlier, uh, looking at the provisions for complementarian churches and ministers. Every single diocese implements those guidelines in their own way, and the best we can do as a commission is get the House of Bishops to issue guidelines for dioceses. But they're not obliged to follow those guidelines at all, if they don't want to. The National Church is no better. Let's have the next slide. This shows the estimated number, no one knows the exact number, of permanent committees in the National Church institutions. It's 97 That's not anything that's just set up temporarily for a time-limited project. I mean, I don't even know what these are. Subcommittees slash working groups, trustee bodies and committees, buildings committees, general synod committees, archbishops committees, and other committees. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with trying to work out how anything gets done. Similarly, uh, the way in which national church institutions relate to dioceses is a mess. So here's a chart which attempts to describe that. I haven't drawn any of these charts. This one, I think, came from something we were given in the last set of General Synod papers in one of our endless discussions about church governance. Chaplains' parishes, schools and cathedrals, how do they relate to dioceses? Well, they also relate directly to national church institutions and to General Synod, apparently. Uh, Dioceses relate back to those things and forward to the national church institutions and also to General Synod. I mean, nobody tell the poor deaneries that they didn't even make it onto this chart. (laughs) We have three separate hierarchies within the Church of England, each of which operate at four levels. So there are the clergy, curates, incumbents, rural deans, archdeacons, bishops, archbishops. We have synods, 
PCCs, Deanery Synods, Diocesan General Synod, paid staff, maybe in your church, certainly at your diocese, a lot of diocesan officers, a lot of national church uh, it's paid staff. It is a mess. As a flowchart, there are so many different levels and different needs and different routes through. It is the kind of thing that would warm the cockles of Sir Humphrey Appleby's civil servant heart. It is a genuine miracle that anything ever gets done, and no surprise that most things, even if they're agreed on and voted on, end up mired in bureaucratic black holes. Pop quiz. When was the first meeting of General Synod? You're not allowed to answer if you're on General Synod. 1970. 1970. It's just not very long ago, is it? 53 years. Until uh, this time last year, the Queen was the only head of state who'd ever been to a general synod. (coughs) Because there wasn't one before her. Uh, Okay. Uh, prior to that, obviously, there was something else. There was a thing called church assembly. Wikipedia describes General Synod as the culmination of a process of rediscovering self-government for the Church of England that had started in the 1850s. That is to say, when they talk about self-government, not everything has to be done by Act of Parliament, because actually the House of Commons has got other stuff on their agenda, funnily enough. When did PCCs become a thing? Anyone know? Well, the legislation for it uh, happened in 1919. I believe the first ones met in 1921, just over 100 years ago. We could just get rid of them. (laughs) I mean, you know, both PCCs and General Cyril had predecessors, but certainly not in the 16th century. Cranmer didn't come up with that idea. And they certainly weren't the same. None of the bureaucracy or democracy that is uh, inherent in those systems is fundamental to Anglicanism. A lot of it is just red tape breeding red tape. Of course, some of it is because we're an organisation that has to function in the 21st century, which is a massively bureaucratic society, and there is a lot of legal and financial stuff that has to be done appropriately. I'm not saying we can get rid of it all. Some of it is genuinely useful. I mean, you know, if you find it, send your answers on a postcard. A lot of this stuff is unnecessary for the church to be church. And I think the big problem, no, one of the big problems, with all this mess is that accountability becomes all but impossible. Power grabs go unnoticed or unchallenged. It is a good thing, isn't it, to have a system where power is not concentrated in one person or one group of people because we're all sinners and we'll misuse it. It is a bad thing to have a system that is so complicated that almost everyone feels impotent. And vacuums get filled by whichever chancer happens to get there first. So at General Synod last month, it was very obvious in almost every debate and discussion that there is a profound lack of trust. People do not trust the national church institutions. They don't trust the House of Bishops. They don't trust the Archbishops. And a lot of the time, not without good reason. For example, with respect to the prayers of love and faith, it is becoming increasingly obvious to everyone what many of us suspected back when they were published in January. The House of Bishops is determined to push it through, despite lacking the authority to do so. 
They know that they don't have the two-thirds of synod needed to do it legally through Canon B2, which is how you would change um, liturgy. So they have attempted and are continuing to attempt to find all kinds of other ways to make it happen. Canon B5, Canon B4, the Faith and Order Commission are now working not to establish any of our doctrine on the question of same-sex marriage, but to establish whether there is a difference between doctrine and teaching. Because that is the nuanced distinction on which the original attempt of the bishops hangs. It is nonsense. The bishops in favour of change are determined to bypass the system to do what they want. That is the act of a tyrant. All leaders, whatever they are, in the church or in the world, should be subject to the legislation under which they serve. Not free to do whatever they want. Ironically, the bishops frequently seem to overlook their own recommended pastoral principles, the first of which is to pay attention to power. Because in the National Church, at General Synod, and in their own diocese, bishops do have power. They do have status. And that makes it even more important that they pay attention to their power and not abuse their position. I think it would be extremely helpful if members of the House of Bishops read uh, Mon- Rob Monroe's chapter in our forthcoming Church Society book, based on his talk given at Jake last year on the role of bishops. What is a bishop? A presbyter to presbyters. Bishop is supposed to guard and guide and teach and pastor the pastors of our local churches. But bishops in the Church of England are confused about what their role is. They are not appointed to change doctrine or teaching of the church. In fact, what do bishops do? They make vows at their consecration to guard and uphold that teaching. And yet I have never heard of a current bishop, at least, who has reprimanded a member of the clergy for teaching something which is contrary to the doctrine of the church. All too often, it is the bishops who teach doctrine contrary to the doctrine of the church. Well, if bishops are confused about their role, so are synods. All too often in my experience of deanery, diocesan and general synods, they are simply talking shops. We hear presentations about nice things. We don't actually do our job of holding staff accountable, of critiquing or improving proposed legislation and practice, of raising issues that have come up from the parish or the diocese. When was the last time your deanery synod did anything that made a difference? When was the last time your diocesan synod did anything that made a difference? You know, one of the things, most useful things I think we could be working towards as evangelicals is getting on the committees which set the agendas for diocesan synod in particular. I mean, you know, if you want to go for it for deanery synod, nobody will stand in your way. (laughs) Staff, paid staff, diocesan officers, national church officers be very confused about their role as well. I used to be a diocesan officer. I was paid uh, by Litchfield Diocese for a couple of years, and it was eye-opening being part of that world. There was no accountability. No one else was really doing anything, so you could just jump into the vacuum and do whatever you wanted. I think that's probably less true if you're the diocesan finance officer (laughs) than if you are the diocesan youth worker. But nonetheless, there's a lot of stuff in your diocese who choose how they fill their days, and no one else 
really pays any attention to whether they're doing something worthwhile. <clears throat> With a system like this, then, complicated, bureaucratic, quasi-democratic, but nobody really held to account, it is no surprise that the politically <coughs> savvy are able to use it to accomplish their ends, while the rest of us are left, are left looking on going, how, how did... Wait, when did we... I don't, oh, OK, that's changed then. Yeah. It is confused. And therefore we have a bemused laity. There are 12,500 parishes in the Church of England, a combined average weekly attendance of around 600,000 people. These are figures from a couple of years ago, so, you know, it's probably half that by now. An estimated worshipping community of just over a million. The mean aggregation, mean average congregation size is 66 people. The median is only 37. I'm not going to make you do all the maths, but what that basically means is the sizes are skewed pretty heavily. There are a smaller number of very large churches and a larger number of very small churches. Half the parish churches in England have a congregation of 36 or fewer. There are about 20,000 ordained clergy. About 7,000 of those are retired, so that leaves just about enough to put one in every parish, if that were prioritised in the way that Save the Parish would like it to be. In practice, of course, there are many parishes which have to share their minister with several others, so that churches in decline are being helped to decline further. The single biggest factor in predicting church growth is a full-time incumbent. Of those million or so people who attend a Church of England church on some kind of regular basis, I wonder how many of them understand the structures of the denomination in the way that we just looked at. I wonder how many of them are regularly being taught the fundamental doctrines of the faith, let alone the specific Church of England teaching found in our historic formularies. I wonder what proportion have any idea about the issues being discussed in Synod. How many realise the danger that the church is in? I mean, we know that just about 6,500 individuals responded to the LLF survey. That is less than 1% of the worshipping community. Despite the decades of discussion about same-sex relationships in Synod, among the bishops and in other groups, there are vast swathes of the Church of England who are barely aware that anything is happening at all. And if they are, they don't care enough to fill in one short online survey about it. Try it when you get home. Have a conversation with someone you know goes to a Church of England church, whether it's yours or someone else's, a different one. Um, ask them if they know that the denomination is in some kind of crisis and what they think the problem might be. I think you might get the answer, numbers, declining numbers. That is not really a surprise to most people, is it? People sort of know that a lot of churches are quite empty. They might say being on the brink of financial ruin, and certainly in some dioceses, that's very clear to people in churches. And it's not hard to see how that's happened. Declining numbers, exacerbated by covid there's a financial problem. I wonder how many would say, yeah, there's a fundamental, irreparable chasm caused by disagreement about the gospel. Wait, what? 
is the church, which is to say the laity, the people, they are the church, is the church even aware of what's happening to it? Does the church understand what might happen in the next year or two? Do people in the church know what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality? Do they know what the historic formularies teach about marriage and sexual immorality? Can they see why the disagreement on those issues reveals a much more fundamental division about what the gospel actually is and the authority that scripture has? Frankly, I think most people do not have a clue. The Church of England is, sort of, a democracy. You know, we elect people, don't we, to PCCs or to synods. People get elected to committees. I mean, if you're ordained, I don't think you can get out of PCC, Ordinary Synod. I, I think you're just on it. Sorry, whether you're elected or not. Um, but just as with our national government, the vast majority of people have no active involvement in politics, do they, beyond casting a vote? And plenty of people don't even do that. I'm always shocked how low the voting figures are at a general election. It's like it's your one moment where you definitely get to do something and you can't even be bothered with that. But the same is true in church government, isn't it? Most people in our churches have no active involvement in church government. And most of those who do, only at a parish level, of course. And if you're not actively involved, that usually means you are uninformed. And it may mean that you are uninterested in what's happening beyond the parish boundaries. And for a very long time, it seemed as though that didn't really matter. Because so long as we were free to keep preaching the gospel in the parish, making disciples, sharing Christ's love in our local community, why would anyone care what was on the agenda at some committee meeting somewhere else? Well... There is a bemused church, I think, some who are beginning to wake up to what's going on, wondering how on earth this has happened. There are a lot of people out there in our churches, a lot of Christians who genuinely love the Lord, but have been starved of faithful Bible teaching, who are disconnected from the denomination beyond their parish, who are utterly bemused by this whole situation. And as the full scale of the mess begins to unfold, I wonder how those people will respond. Mm. How will they know what to do and who to trust? Will they feel as though they have been blindfolded, kept in the dark and betrayed? Will they rise up in protest or will they simply walk away? We have a confused leadership and a bemused laity. We also have, I mean, there are, you know, I could have written a nine-hour talk for this. <laughs> but the other thing I am going to say is that we have an established church, an established church that is being used and abused by the state. I don't think we often stop to consider that. This last year, perhaps more than in most of our lifetimes, it's been an obvious thing for us because we've had a coronation. Listen to the oath, part of the oath, that Charles III made just a few months ago. He was asked, will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline and government thereof as by law 
established in England. The Church of England, its doctrine, its worship, its discipline and its government is established by law. That is not the law of the church, but the law of the land. The General Synod is the only body other than Parliament, and now I guess you could include within that the devolved governments uh, in Scotland and Wales, um, that has the power to enact UK law. Like, I don't really understand this. Um, I don't know whether Jan does or, or Charlie, but sometimes we're told what we're actually doing right now is making law. And it's really exciting. More often, we don't do that. More often, we agree things that then have to go through Parliament in order to become law. Um, but, it, but it's kind of a, an amazing thing. That is how enmeshed the Church of England is in England's legislative system. We get to make some English law. And Parliament gets to make church law. A number of bishops sit in the House of Lords by right. The coronation of the monarch must legally include oaths committing that monarch to upholding the Church of England. We are absolutely (coughs) entangled in the state. There is a cross-party parliamentary ecclesiastical committee, so it must be from the church, uh, consisting of 30 politicians from across the Commons and the Lords. Among its members are the Labour MP for Exeter, Ben Bradshaw. Earlier this year, he publicly called for the Church of England to permit same-sex marriages and introduced a private member's bill to Parliament with that goal. It won't go anywhere. It's a private member's bill. But it could... In the Church of England at the moment, we're not allowed to perform same-sex marriages because that was the way the Act of Parliament was drafted under David Cameron. That exemption could change. We were told at General Synod in February by uh, Justin Welby that strong pressure was being put on him by Parliament to make that change. This is not how establishment is supposed to work. Establishment is supposed to act as a guard against changes in the doctrine, worship, discipline and government of the church. It is not supposed to promote such changes. In an ideal system, the state would uphold the teaching of the church and protect her so that she can worship freely. The church's role would be to hold the state accountable before God. The church would bring God's wisdom to bear on issues of political and national importance in order to help the politicians act rightly before God. We have the opposite. We've ended up in a system where the state wants to hold the church accountable to secular, ungodly worldviews that are popular today. I mean, presumably when those views shift, the church will be expected to shift as well. It feels like the church has become a plaything of the state, used to lend it credence when that is seen as valuable at state funerals, royal weddings, coronations. But the church is there to be pushed around and bullied until she stops being such an embarrassment the rest of the time. There are, I think, some very serious questions about whether it's good or right to have an established church 
in an unchristian country. If the church is not allowed to exercise its freedom as church because of its establishment position, then surely it should disconnect itself from the state in order to honour God. If the church can maintain its freedom and exercise some restraining influence on a secular government, perhaps that continues to be worthwhile. But I think this question of same-sex marriage is a good test case for the place of the church. The current exemption that we have holds, uh, provides some protection for other denominations and other religious groups, doesn't it? If the Church of England capitulates, will any group be permitted a legal exemption? What about your Orthodox Jewish synagogue, your mosque down the road? Will they be required to permit same-sex marriages? Roman Catholic churches? Or will there be a greater degree of toleration for non-established churches than for the Church of England? I don't know. Where are we now? I think we're a bruised church, aren't we? Denomination with confused leadership, bemused laity, abused by the state. We have systems that assume we are all nice, well-meaning people seeking the best for Christ's church. But of course those systems are populated by sinners, some of whom are seeking deliberately to undermine Christ's church, some of whom are seeking to prevent gospel proclamation, some of whom are promoting sin, and some of whom are simply engaged in self-aggrandizement. No wonder we feel badly bruised. No wonder that the cracks are beginning to widen and perhaps the whole structure feels as though it might topple. Thankfully, we keep holding on to the truth that Christ is building the church, Christ is the shepherd of his flock, Christ is the head of his body. Christ is still doing his work. Will that work continue through the denomination that has proclaimed Christ's name in this country for nearly 500 years? I don't know. But I do know that God specialises in bringing good out of bad. I do know, as Jan mentioned uh, before, in the past six months we've seen greater evangelical unity in the Church of England than there has been in my lifetime. I do know that all kinds of people and churches have been galvanised to contend for the gospel with greater zeal. I know that hard truths are being taught publicly where perhaps a generation ago they were being skimmed over. I do know that evangelicals are systematically getting involved in all the structures of the church. The last thing we uh, voted for on General Synod for a committee was a new member of... Um, I think it's the Archbishop's Finance Committee, something like that. There were two people who stood. They're both members of church society. It was great. You could choose whichever one you wanted and know that you were going to have an evangelical in that place. Much of what paralyses the Church of England is not inherently Anglican. Church bureaucracy that is unrecognisable to the church even just of just 100 years ago. What has changed once can change again. So what kind of church does England have? I think we have a church full of disciples who are willing to stand up and be counted for their faith. I think we have a generation of disciples who are willing to work hard and do hard things for the sake of our crucified saviour. 
I think we have a diverse group of disciples, united by our faith in Christ, willing to work together so that his name will be proclaimed and he will be glorified. I think we still have extraordinary opportunities to do that in Church of England churches, in parishes and in schools. I think we have a church full of sheep who are starving, who need someone to feed them from God's word. I think we have the church that Christ has built and is building to meet the needs of this generation and continue for the future. Thanks, Ross. Lots in there, lots to digest. Why not spend 10 or 20 seconds just buzzing with the person next to you? Come up with a question, maybe, if you'd like to. We're going to do some question and answers um, in a sec. Um, just a few seconds just to process, and then we'll come and ask Ross a few questions. Okay, hopefully that's generated a couple of questions. Um, who wants to... Yes, there's two. Let's start. Well, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but we have commissioners who appoint our bishops. Is there any kind of, I don't know what the phrasing is, obligation for them to be, you know, Christians or even Republicans? Right, so Crown Nominations Commission. Yes. How do you get onto that? So we elect some from General Synod. So in order to be a General Synod member, it's the same criteria as for standing for PCC and electoral role. No, not electoral role, PCC. I think you do have to be a regular communicant member of your local church. So that would be the, the kind of baseline. I don't think you then have to sign any other kind of understanding of your faith beyond that. There are some people who are part of that process in other ways, I think, and I don't know who they are and how they get there. No, no. Jan doesn't know. Charlie, do you know? Yes. Oh, go on then. Well, there's two halves, half elected in your diocese, half elected nationally. They all have to be regular communicants. There are two members of staff who um, I don't think have any occupational requirement. One of them is a very keen evangelical Christian, the other was involved in the most high-profile gay marriage within the Anglican Church in Scotland. And are those self-members, would they also be sort of voting vote. in the process? No. They, no. Vote. Yeah. they assist in yeah. document drawing up, shortlisting. They're involved in various ways, but they don't vote. Yeah, great. Thank you. Good. Uh, Tom, you had a question. Um, I was wondering if you knew if the number... So do you give us a national picture, but at parish level, yeah. are the numbers of evangelical parishes, of course you don't actually have evangelical liberal parishes, etc., but in a a sense you do. Um, Is that changing? Yes, I don't have numbers. I think, anecdotally, I I think it is. And I think it's changing um, because we are seeing increasing numbers of evangelicals actively seeking out positions in non-traditionally evangelical parishes and being willing to go, whether it's a hard place, being willing to go to places that are small, places that are multi-parish benefices, and and stick there and do good work. So um, George uh, mentioned uh, before the break, uh, we have a thing at Church Society called the Network of Revitalisation Ministries, which has like 100, 150? 175. 175 people. They're not all ordained clergy, but who are involved in some of that sort of work. Most are. Yeah, most are, but it's, it's, it is a bit broader than that, isn't it? Um, so, so definitely that is happening. I think there's also 
some truth, although I think this is very hard to, to quantify and maybe more true in anecdote than reality of which of the churches that are declining to the point of closure or functional closure are less likely to be evangelical. Um, yeah. Okay, fine. So, I mean, I think the other thing you could point to as evidence is where are the people training who are being ordained? And although there are many, many liberals training and being ordained, they are predominantly on part-time training courses and are older. So they're being trained in their 50s, say. If you look at people who are being trained in their 30s, or, you know, under 30 used to be the sort of benchmark for, for a young ordinary and you had to do New Testament Greek, the, the majority of those are coming through evangelical training colleges of one kind or another. So, again, that would indicate there is a, a shift. But it's, yeah, it's hard to... But the numbers in those colleges are still pretty... Are, are, my understanding is those colleges are declining. Yes. Um, and cellulitis, um, yeah. for example. It's broad, yeah. And broad, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think the, the sort of um, shift away from residential training is is problematic. Um, and the shift towards things which are one size fits all is a thing the Church of England, some parts of Church of England, would really like to see happen a lot more and, and isn't great. So it's, it's hard to know, is my answer. Jacob? Um, I really appreciated the, the comment that you had about the bishops' roles kind of reversing from upholding the faith to sort of challenging the faith. Where do you see that development having occurred? That shift to have, yeah, where, where does that come from? Yeah, I think it's... I mean, my, my history of these things isn't great. It's certainly not a new thing, is it? So when was the honest-to-God chap around? 63. Right, exactly. So there's, there's always been that sort of thing. And I think maybe some of it came, around, came about in a... It used to be that bishops often were theologians. Not anymore. But it used to be that lots of them would have done PhDs and studied theology. And in the 20th century, there is certainly an absence of evangelical academics and academic theologians. And so if you've got bishops coming out of that sort of liberal higher education field able to kind of talk nonsense in a profound sounding kind of way then I think that that's much and and evangelicals who are a disconnecting from the denomination but b not really engaging with their faith hugely intellectually with some notable and wonderful example uh, uh, what's the word I'm going to say? Exceptions. Exceptions, thank you. Um, you know, you can sort of see how that might happen and they then get to think of themselves as the leaders of the faith. And and you get this sort of weird thing, well, we're the bishops, so if we say it, it is true. And we get to sort of define that truth. A bit like if you lived in North Korea. This is not being recorded. <laughs> can I ask a follow-up question? Yes. So sometimes you hear the, the narrative that goes a little bit like, um, as soon as someone starts to try and get a bit involved in the structure of the Church of England or tries to climb the ladder, then it's just a slippery slope to liberalism. And so maybe the reason why, this is yeah. how the narrative will go, that maybe the reason why there are no great evangelical bishops, because once upon a time they would have been, but by the right. time they get to becoming a bishop, mm-hmm. they're, they're liberal. Yeah. That's true, I think, I mean, I think there is some truth in that. I think 
sometimes there are people who are good at saying what they think people want them people want to hear and sometimes do that with really good intentions and want to communicate well and therefore if you're that sort of person and you're then surrounded by people who want to hear a slightly different thing you may think you're doing good communication with them but actually slightly slipping or not slipping but but you're being heard to slip because your language is changing because of who you're talking to I think it's been very instructive to watch what's been happening with bishops this year. So in January, Prayers of Love and Faith are published on a Friday. Andrew Watson, who's the Bishop of Guildford, spoke at a CEC event on the Saturday, which I didn't go to, but I heard he was very kind of, yeah, no, we, this is all right, and we should go for it. By Monday or Tuesday at CEC... He starts the day saying, well, I, I think this is why we all agree that it's all fine. By the end of the day, he's, I can't put my name to this. And is realising that the rhetoric that he has heard in the House of Bishops was politically driven in a way that he wasn't anticipating. And I think was realising actually where that had gone. And it was clear because he, you know, has stood up really publicly against it at this point. It's not that he had changed his mind it was that he was being he was in a room that full of people who were able to say things in a way that made him think it was all right mm-hmm. and i i just think for quite a number of years and i know a lot of people were very frustrated that in february so it's just you know it's like 3 weeks later or something there weren't more bishops standing up against president <coughs> there were some who were were wonderful there were some who I think were still in that sort of unworking what they had been told phase. And there were some who I think were still sort of hoping that things might not be as bad as other people saying, actually, do you not realise this is as bad as this? Mm-hmm. So it's hard, isn't it? Because the people you spend your time with do affect the way that you think about things. And So I don't think it's necessarily that they've all lost their evangelical roots. I think it does happen sometimes. But I, maybe their evangelical roots weren't as strong as, as we first saw. It's can hard I, being a bishop. Yes, well? please do. <clears throat> I'll just, Come up here. No, no, I'll just tell you a little I think the other thing that happens is that when you're a bishop, you are a bishop of the entire diocese, and therefore you're speaking for evangelicals and non-evangelicals. And if you're a bishop, you're a member of the House of Bishops. And therefore I think that anyone, rightly, has a certain sense of loyalty to yeah. their office. Yeah. And that is actually a, la- a laudable thing yeah. in, in some situations. So it may be that a, you know, someone who's not my bishop, who is an evangelical, and I'm just frustrated that they're saying this now, I don't know what the optics are for them. And also from my own personal experience, uh, there are certain things I do and don't say publicly, yeah. both on my blog and on Twitter, um, because I represent the House of Laity on the Archbishop's Council. So that means I, I say certain things and I don't say certain things mm-hmm. about certain archbishops or other people yeah. that I would probably speak differently if I weren't a member, if I weren't representing mm-hmm. the whole House of Laity. Now, only half of them actually voted for me and the other half voted for the other representative, yeah. Rachel Jepson, who was a very um, uh, nice uh, lady who I like very much, but who has a very different view from me. And even just the way I'm speaking about her, 
shows that I want to hold her in respect because I yeah. want to respect the process that put me there. Yeah. So I guess when an evangelical becomes a bishop, suddenly they're part of a, a house of bishops or they're part of a college. Yeah. And they want to be, they yeah. have a certain sense of loyalty, which I think yeah. is in general a good thing, yes. but it is a frustrating thing if they're not yeah. speaking truth to power or yeah. suddenly they've turned or whatever. So there yes. are just loads of optics working there. I just Definitely. That. No, that's right. And we certainly, you know, this whole process has been going on for a long time and a number of the evangelical bishops have been sort of saying all along, we know you really want us to say things publicly and strongly. We feel it's very important for the conversations we're having with the other bishops that we're, we're sort of holding fire a bit. I mean, there comes a point where you want to say... I don't know what else you're waiting for that you're holding your powder for, and maybe this is the moment. But, yeah, pray for your bishop if you do nothing else. Yeah, Ben. I, I suppose this... Well, I did have a different question, but following on from that, I suppose... It is what you're implying that bishops can't think for themselves? No, I don't... I, I guess just to kind of unpack that a little bit. No, I don't mean that. Yeah. Aren't they sort of supposed to be a bit like MPs in the sense yeah. that they, they are paid for their conscience? And to, yeah. It's a representative democracy, but it's not a direct democracy. So yeah. not, you don't have to represent every constituency. Well, so they, yes, that's true. A bishop doesn't have to represent every diocese. A bishop does have to pastor every clergy person in their diocese. And obviously most dioceses, I mean, I don't know how diverse it is on Sodor and Man, but <laughs> everywhere else it's, it's going to be pretty diverse, isn't it? And I think, therefore what they have to do is consider how can they continue to be a bishop to this person with this opinion over here and this person with this opinion over here and not say things publicly in a way that destroys those relationships unnecessarily. They also, as Gemma said, have to consider their their relationships with their colleagues among their bishops and, you know, and with... Uh, church house staff that they work with and their diocesan staff and all of those kinds of things and they are all incredibly busy I mean some of them do things you think I don't know why you're wasting your time doing that (laughs) but but they are all incredibly busy and have a lot of very different things that they are expected to know about I mean you know I'm always amazed at Generalson when bishops have to stand up and give answers to questions they do get them in advance but the supplementary questions they don't get in advance and then, you know, suddenly you've got a bishop who's expected to be an expert on net zero in one breath and the National Safeguarding Board in the next breath and, you know, some other thing that I've never heard of in the next... You know, there's just a lot on them. And sometimes they're going to say things <coughs> wrong. I don't... There is a sort of, and it has felt with Prayers of Lumpoth, has been, certainly we've been presented it as the bishops are of one mind, the house of bishops are of one mind. And some have felt more constrained by that than others at various points in the process. I think that is beginning to come apart as well. Certainly there have been some bishops, and you will have seen this, who felt very comfortable saying very publicly what they feel on a progressive sort of side. And I think some evangelicals are beginning to think, yeah, actually it's okay for me to speak as, as publicly on the other side. But, it, you know, there's a lot of complicated dynamics to, for them to consider. I reckon we've got three more questions. Three more. I, I mean, anyone who's not a church society staff member? 
Go, Michael. So there was one structure missing from your flowcharts, was, which was the ecclesiastical courts. Thank you, yes. Would you like to take that up with the bishop in charge of national church governance who, who drew the chart? <laughs> Any discussion happened around, so if the bishops and the archbishops try to force through their changes against synods, has any discussion been had around using the church courts to hold them to account? I believe so. There is a pretty hot legal team on the um, side of the angels <laughs> who I, I think are, have already done quite a lot of work using various legal mechanisms and so on. I think there is also a, a sort of, you know, fallback plan for if things go through that that could be challenged. I am not the expert to be able to say how that would happen or if that would happen or when that would happen. There are also some very wealthy people who I think are committed to funding that should it be necessary. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, Joe. I think it's been said a couple of times, Ross, that the, the Church of England doesn't really exist. Yes. Um, Nor does the Anglican Communion, by the way. Certainly <laughs> 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 not now. Dioceses do exist. Yes. Um, is, there, is there much that would prevent a diocese, or a, a, if it chose to, from disassociating itself from the rest of the Church of England, uh, being out of communion at, at the level of ministry, and, and choosing to, to not uh, promote a prayers of love and faith, even if they... I think, not being the expert on this, I think the law, and therefore I think it would be a bit like if you took a congregation in that sort of way, the diocese would say, yeah, well, that's fine, but the building and the vicarage and all of that sort of stuff still belong to us. My guess is that if a diocese tried to do something similar, there would be a huge legal battle, because although the diocese can say, yes, but we own these things, there would be an argument that you're not then the diocese of the Church of England. I don't know. Without saying it's leaving the Church of England, I've no other countries have experienced these problems. It's just a question I've had. And mm. I mean, I, I genuinely think, this is, this is off topic, but this is my feeling with all of this if the you know if the worst comes to the worst in november or february or whenever we finally get round to it i don't think there is anything that anyone can legally do to you if you are an incumbent and you just stay in your parish and you preach the gospel i genuinely don't think there is anything they could legally do to you and if they wanted to try i mean make them be the bad guys make them be the ones evicting you and you know changing the locks on the church building and all that kind of stuff because you know you've made those vows you know you're you're fulfilling them in the eyes of god and in the eyes of the law obviously where this is more difficult and we will be having a panel discussion tomorrow where you might want to raise some of these kind of questions is if you're somebody who's still in training still in curacy if you need to move on even if you're incumbent you've got to move somewhere else how you ensure any kind of succession in that, I think is a is a much more complicated question. But I I think you know, and if you had then a whole diocese that was like, no, we're just going to stay orthodox and carry on being the Church of England in the way that is established by law, it would be very interesting to see. You would certainly have people from 
you know, pink news on your doorstep instantly. <laughs> you know, we want to get married in your church and we're legally a- allowed to. And, you know, that would go down pretty quickly and there'd be some kind of legal precedent established. But, you know, give it a go. <laughs> Good on. With the panel, I feel like we can add more questions. So thanks for asking. Yes, it doesn't have to be those those. questions. Well, you can, and I'm sure you can grab us at dinner as well. Um, I mentioned right at the beginning, there are two reasons not to be disheartened. One is because in Jesus, we have absolutely every spiritual blessing. The other is because in the weirdest of ways, it turns out that God's, that the church is God's plan for everything. Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the mess that Ros has just described, that beautiful um, kind of combo of Jew and Gentile and saved sinner, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is God's idea. And that is reason number two to be encouraged. So let's sing of that now, and then um, we'll turn... Well, we'll stay standing at the end, and we'll, we'll do some praying as well. Let's stand and sing.